0: As we come now before God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read along with me, to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27. Uh, Matthew's the first book of the, Old Te- or of the New Testament, or you can just listen along, but if you'd like to read, it's Matthew chapter 27. Last week, we, we ended our read through the book of Esther. And before we start a new series, um, today we want to pause here in the events of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so before we read, would you please, please pray with me? Our God, we know that your word is living and active And it is this way because you, Jesus, are living and active. Would you work in us now by your Spirit? Help us to hear your word and to believe. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start in Matthew chapter uh, 27, beginning in verse 62 and then read through a good part of of chapter 28. But this is Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember How that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went. And made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money And did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. So here in this section of Matthew, we've got uh, three scenes which are connected. They're sandwiched together. That's the structure. The first scene happens on, on Saturday. When the body of Jesus is still in the tomb, and that's when uh, the guards are set at the tomb. And the second scene is on Sunday, the third day. Uh, Jesus was crucified on Friday, that's the first day, and and Friday, Saturday, on the third day, uh, he's resurrected, and so we see in the second scene the resurrection of Jesus, the Easter event. And then in the final scene, the third one, we see the report of the guards about what had happened there in that second scene. So that's the structure here. We know in the Bible that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these are written accounts of the life and death and life again of Jesus. And so just as if any one of us were writing about someone else that we know, uh, none of them can record everything about the life of Jesus. That would be impossible. And so uh, these gospel writers, to an extent, have to be selective about what they tell in the life of Jesus. So they emphasize through their gospels different aspects of the ministry of Jesus. Even though they're different in their focus sometimes, they still all agree with each other and cohere with each other. And and they focus on the same big events. Uh, So we see in all four Gospels the Easter event of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a central, vital moment for Jesus and especially for us. We know that Jesus came on this earth to die as a sacrifice, to atone, we say, to, to cover over sin so that it would not be counted against a believer and that God's wrath would not be poured out on a believer for sin. Jesus, in his death, took that upon himself and then took that to the grave. And then we know, we celebrate that on the third day, He's not dead, but he's raised victorious over sin and death. And Jesus does all of this to bring a believer to God. That's the goal. So, in the Gospels, it's no surprise then, at least in some sense, that we, that we would see Jesus victorious. Uh, that we would see and read that Jesus is alive and that he's raised from death. Uh, that's the middle part of the sandwich. That's the meat but what's interesting in Matthew is the bread of the sandwich. The account of the guards at the beginning, how they were set up, and then the report about what they say happened to the body of Jesus. Matthew is the only, only gospel writer to record uh, these particular events, although uh, Mark also talks about... Oh, thanks, sweetheart. I heard that. Um, <laughs> helping Daddy preach. I hear you. Um, What was I saying? Uh, (laughs) um, Sorry, that was a solid cry out there. Um, Mark's the only gospel writer to record uh, these events about the guards, although Mark mentions the guards at the trial of Jesus um, and at his arrest. Uh, Matthew's the only one that records the guards here at the tomb. And the reason I think he, he does that, he says at the end of this whole section in verse 15 of chapter 28, um, Matthew writes, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We know that Matthew himself was was Jewish by heritage. He was a Jewish Christian. And his original audience, as he wrote, was to other Jewish Christians, people who, their background or heritage was Jewish, but they believed that Jesus is the Son of God and they followed after Jesus. Uh, so it's likely that Matthew heard this story circulating about uh, the, the, the story that Jesus' body had been stolen. It's likely that he heard that from many other people, that this rumor was, was, was drifting around. He'd probably heard it many times. So here now, Matthew is including a response to those particular rumors. He gives here what we call an apology, or an apologetic is another way to say it. Uh, When we we use the word apology here in this context, it's not that he's saying he's sorry. That's a different use of the word. Uh, He's not saying... You know, my sister was like that when, when I came in the room, you know, she's crying and oh, I'm so sorry. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. His apology, when, he, when he's doing an apology here, he's really giving us a defense, a justification, a reasonable case based on the events and the evidence. So apology is common in courtroom settings, even now, but even back in the day of Jesus. There's an accusation against uh, the person who needs to defend themselves, and then there's a defense or an apology, and the person's to present an argument to be weighed by the court. Uh, That happened for the Apostle Paul uh, later when he was on trial before King Agrippa. Uh, He was on trial for preaching that Jesus was and is the Son of God, and he makes this very big apology in Acts chapter 26. It starts in verse 1. I won't read this, this whole thing, but I'll pick up the end of his apology or his defense um, in Acts 26, starting in verse... He starts in verse 1, but we will start in verse 21. Paul says this. For this reason, the Jews seized, seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, as Paul's making his defense, his apology, his reasoned case, he says, What I'm saying is true and rational. It's reasonable, and and none of this that I'm saying, none that's happened has been done in a corner. In other words, those who proclaim uh, Jesus as the Son of God, Christians, including Paul, uh, are not doing this tucked away in a corner, secretively somewhere. All of this is out in the open, on display, to be seen, to be examined, to be considered. Matthew does the similar thing in making his apologies, making a reasonable case to the accusation that Jesus is still dead, but that his body had been stolen. So he gives background, here's just a brief overview of what happens, he gives background as to where the accusation came from originally. He says that the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, who we know throughout the Gospels had long been opponents to Jesus uh, during most of his ministry, That after Jesus had died, these religious leaders go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they say, listen, Jesus has been causing us a whole lot of trouble, and even though he's dead now, we know that a number of times during his ministry, he said he would be killed, and that three days later, he would rise again, and that's true, by the way. That happened in Matthew's gospel back in chapter 12 that Jesus foretold not only his death but also his resurrection. And so the religious leaders now know that this resurrection story, if it turns out to be believed, is really a game changer. So they say to Pilate, we want to make sure that the disciples of Jesus don't try to make it look like Jesus is still alive by stealing his body. And if that happened, that fraud would make us even worse off than we were before. So Pilate says, all right, you've got temple guards. Go ahead, use them with all their force. And so they do. They set up the guard. uh, They seal the tomb with a stone. And then early in the morning on Sunday, the unthinkable happens. According to Matthew, we see an earthquake, which is caused by this creature, that comes out of the sky, this angel which is bright like lightning and he he rolls uh, the stone away of the tomb and these tough burly guards are terrified and they freeze just like dead men and when you look in the tomb there's nothing there it's empty, the body of Jesus is gone just as he said and so the guards who are witnesses uh, to all of this, and, and they know that they now had been hired to do a job and that this has now caused trouble for them, they, they, some of them report back to the religious leaders. That's the last half, the bread at the end. And, and so the religious leaders, it says in verse, uh, verse 12, they call an assembly. They gather together to try to decide what do we do about this problem? And at the end of the assembly, here's the solution they come up with. We're going to pay the guards to say they fell asleep and that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And so that happens. The soldiers are paid, and that's the report. In the end, the story spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew's now giving an apology, a defense to be weighed now by the reader, by us. He knows, Matthew knows, just like we know, that all of the Pharisees and all that the opponents of Jesus have to do to prove their accusations against Jesus and to stop this rapidly growing movement and the follower of Jesus, all they have to do is just produce the body of Jesus. All you have to do to say that he's really dead is go, Here he he is. He's dead. He's not alive. Look, here's the body. But they can't do that. For some reason, the body's gone. So they need a different explanation other than uh, the resurrection of Jesus and their best attempt to explain it is to say the soldiers fell asleep and that the followers stole the body in the middle of the night. That's their answer That the body was just taken. Never mind the fact that uh, the soldiers know that if they actually fell asleep on the job, that not only would they lose their job in that culture, uh, they could be sent to prison or killed by the ones who hired them. Never mind the fact uh, that if they really slept, they would have no idea what actually happened. Whether, whether the body was stolen or whether the body was raised or otherwise. Uh, never mind the fact that to move the stone, which by the way is sealed, the stone which weighs over 1,000 pounds, think 80 average bowling balls kind of melted together into one, to move all of that and the full dead body of a grown man would have taken lots of people, lots of effort, time, and noise in the middle of the night. And Never mind the fact that the soldiers don't bother to hunt or to search for the disciples and the claimed stolen body of Jesus, but they go straight to the religious leaders. And Never mind the fact that by the edict of Caesar, uh, grave robbing is a capital offense, and so you could be uh, killed, punished by death, and that's a huge risk if Jesus is not really alive. Never mind the fact that if the disciples stole the body of Jesus, They know that he isn't true. That he is dead wrong and all of this is a lie. And yet those same disciples still follow Jesus after his death. And many of them are martyred for a thing that in this story they they know not to be true. Never mind the fact that hundreds of people in different times and in different places in the days after the death of Jesus report coherent accounts of seeing Jesus alive, that they walked with him, ate with him, talked with him, and touched his living body. Never mind all of that. They fell asleep. We, we fell asleep. They stole the body. That's the end. And people believed it. People today still believe that. Because we can always find reasons not to believe. In Mark's Apology, he actually wants us to mind the events, to actually turn our brains on here. He actually wants the reader to weigh the reasonable case for the empty tomb. That as incredible as it might sound, it makes even the most sense that Jesus is not dead, but is alive. You can probably see the irony in these accounts that the chief priests and the Pharisees at the beginning they call uh, these events of Jesus a fraud and in verse 63 they call him that imposter and yet when the guards come to them and report what happened they make up what they know to be a lie (laughs) who's the imposter now how uh, stubborn they had become in their unbelief how ingrained is the blindness of these quote good religious people that they see just what they want to see and convince themselves that they're doing the right thing They're handcuffed by their own hard hearts. How sad is that? Surely we're better than this, aren't we? It's frightening if we look at the roots of something like this. James talks about where something like this comes from in the book of james just a few verses here from chapter 1 and beginning in verse 14 james says this but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. You can see the chain of events there. He says that self-deception is really killing us. And that self-deception is born out of sin, sin is born out of temptation and temptation is born out of our own desires our own hearts James here even uses language like conception and giving birth that these things are really alive it's like a, 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 a mad scientist's brewing of a virus that it, it, it breeds in us and grows in us that it begins to eat us. The problem here is not primarily the brain or the intellect. The problem is the heart, the desire of a person. It's a heart that breeds sin, and then the sin breeds death. That's true of the religious leaders, it's true of, of you, of me. Do you see now why we need a victor, not only over death, but over sin, over our twisted desires? Now, I've said all of that to get us here. So if you went off somewhere about a crockpot that's cooking in your mind, okay, come back. We, we did all of this to get to this point. We climbed the mountain, so now let's look at what we can see from the top. Even though Matthew in his gospel and others are making a good and reasonable apology or defense, which helps us uh, to see the resur- that the resurrection of Jesus is not based on blind belief, It is not based on unexamined acceptance, and it is not based on irrational religion, but belief in the resurrection of Jesus is actually logical faith. It actually gives us confidence to see that this is really true, that these things actually happened in history. Even though Matthew does all of that with a reasonable case still, Reason is not the primary emphasis of the Gospels. When Jesus on the third day rose bodily, alive and well, those who met him did not peek over their glasses and go, ah, this is logically true. and What a solid argument has now been made. Ah, yes, now I believe. That's not their response. Look at what is their response. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. that they bowed before him. They knelt in worship. That is true belief, that some would see Jesus and go, ah, my Lord and my God. Jesus is not a theory to be examined. Jesus is the Lord to be praised with fear and great joy. That at the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, we really look and go, oh, you really are Lord over all. Jesus, be Lord over me. The celebration of Easter and his resurrection, we see his victory over the grave and also over our own stubborn hearts and our own selfish desires so that Christ would bring us to God. Now will you come to him? Will you believe and follow him? And will you worship him? Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we know that your resurrection is true. Would you overcome our unbelief? Be victorious over us and lead us by your grace and power to your throne to worship you as God. Lord, now as we come to the table that you've set before us, would you set aside this bread and this juice as holy? Would you humble us and make us thankful receivers of your body and blood? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.